The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our glorious God, the one who sees us in our affliction, the one who sees us in our joy, the one who has seen us before we were even born and called us to trust in you. I pray now, Lord Jesus, that your people hear your word and not me. Father, that you have promised your word will never return to you, Lord. So I pray, Jesus, that they, they understand who you are through this song. And God, I pray that every word that I say be pleasing to you. Lead me and guide me. Think with my mind. Speak with my mouth, Lord. Hide me beneath your cross. Empty me out so that I may be filled up with your spirit. Help us, Jesus, to see your presence with us. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, Lord, be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer, all God's people said together. All God's people said together. Amen, beloved. Uh, again, as I always say, it is good to be in God's house. Amen, somebody. Uh, just brief order of service. I was reminded that if you're, if you're visiting with us and this is your first time or you've been visiting and you never let us know who you were and you're looking for a church home, we'd love for you to fill out a guest card. Um, you can find a guest card right um, in your uh, pamphlet maybe or right out front at one of the front desks and someone will be able to help you give you more information about downtown church tell you what we're all about uh, and how you can get plugged into the church as we go into our sermon text this morning we start we're we starting this is the second week of our ser- summer sermon series through the Psalms which we're particularly dealing with worship say worship And as we go through the Psalms dealing with worship, we're talking about praise and we are talking about lament. Say lament. We're talking about praise and lament. Last week, Richard dealt with preaching through Psalm 103. The psalmist teaches us how to worship with all of our soul. We were instructed and heard him expound upon what that means for our lives and how we ought to do that with a discipline, a schedule, and a practice. When we look at this week, we see Psalm 22. As you have already heard, it's a gruesome psalm, and some theologians have already made it clear that in this individual lament by David, it's a foreshadow of Christ crucified. However, I don't want to highlight the crucified Christ in this text. I want us to deal with what David is actually lamenting about, his pain, his sorrow, his grief. And as he is going through this, he's actually teaching us how to worship God. A lot of times it's easy to worship God when it's everything is going right. Bank account on full. Savings account looking clean. You may like jewelry, so you got, you got your jewelry on. You, you got your shoes on. Whatever you like, you, as long as it's going all right, everything is good. 
I can come to this place and worship my God as long as everything is all right. But what if your week is towed up, bank account overdrawn, bills due, you don't have enough food on the table, EBT ain't running like it should. I hope you're not selling your EBTs, but you probably can't sell it this week either. Maybe your boss is driving you crazy in that corporate office and you're thinking about leaving your job, but you can't because this is so much security. How about you have so much trouble at your home, you don't even want to go home to your spouse, so you stay at work from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. and you act like you're working overtime. What if it's not going right? Will you still worship him? Will you cry out to God? Will you allow yourself only to worship God when you feel like things are going all right? Before we go into what this psalm actually gets to, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what is a lament? Mike, what are you talking about, a lament? A lament is one that is, is the oldest literary genre in the Old Testament. There are actually four kinds of lament. You have one of a funeral, and many of you have gone to funerals, and I know some of us say we call it a home going, and we want to celebrate, but there is an aspect in which in celebrating we're still grieving, and there is a lament that is in place. Many of our brothers and sisters have experienced that within the last month or two, and you heard it through our prayers. But then you also have a city lament, where we have come and lamented about the issues in our own city, whether it's something dealing with a crisis from, uh, with, 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 from a housing issue, from a, from a poverty issue, from a violence issue. We come together as a city to lament. We come together and we have a community lament, where as a community, a body of people, and downtown church has done this, dealing with a lot of the injustices we've seen over the years. And the whole church came together in this particular place, uh, I recall, and lamented regarding the killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and many other African-American men and other brown, black and brown brothers and sisters who have been murdered by police brutality, community lament, and then the individual lament, which is what we're dealing with this morning. A lament which is, you see David crying out to Jesus, crying out to God because he feels abandoned. It's okay to be in your prayer closet and wailing. It's okay to be in this congregation and wail out to God because the doctor's report didn't come back okay because you don't know if you're going to make it next week. You're tormented by so much trauma that you've been through in life, what you've seen in home, how you've been abused. It's okay to lament that. And what we understand is that laments are most common in the Psalms and it's found also in the book of Job and get lamentations. It's obvious in lamentations there. But as well as in the prophets, we see lament is actually spread throughout the entire Old, Old Testament. In fact, it's a crucial element that gives us insight between God and man and that relationship. And so when we look at an individual lament, we're typically seeing it addressed to Yahweh, addressed to God, a complaint describing the situation and a request for help. 
an affirmation of confidence, confidence, an assertion of innocence or confession of sin. And even it can be in a hymnic way, element as well. This is what a lament actually is and what we see. So when we look at this morning, I want you to know that in this psalm, the lament we're actually looking at helps us to worship God through suffering and not seek vengeance on enemies. To worship God through suffering and not see vengeance on enemies, but actually desire to see the nations, say nations, delivered by God. But here's the struggle, beloved, that I think we all struggle with. How many of us want to see somebody who's murdered or tormented, abused, stole, afflicted, anybody that we love or ourselves delivered by God? How many of us want to see our enemies come to know Jesus? I think many of us want to see their demise. Which then gives us a narrow scope of what deliverance actually means for nations. It's hard to look at what it means between, let's just deal with it, what it means between racial issues and even class issues in our society. And then global issues dealing with immigration, other issues dealing in our own, in South Africa, with apartheid. It's hard to look at nations try to come together when they cannot forgive each other. And get this, not even just forgive each other, but say, I want to see this person delivered by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to even see that or understand that. Think about somebody come in your house, beat your family, steal from you. Do you want to see them come to know Jesus? I'm going to tell y'all right now, I don't. I want to oops upside the head. But the reality is, beloved, David teaches us, teaches us what we ought to learn from this text. That we who've been oppressed shouldn't want to feel pain for our, should want our oppressors to feel pain. We who've been marginalized, abused, discriminated against, that we should not want to see our enemies deliver, delivered to, to defeat, but we want to see them delivered to Jesus. David helps us this morning because he feels lonely, humiliated, vulnerable, and worthless. Each and every last one of us have felt that. Therefore, each and every last one of us can lament. But here's the wrestle that we see. There's a wrestle with lamenting to God combined with understanding the comfort that you have in God. Does that sound like an oxymoron? That I can lament, that I can actually worship God while going through trouble, while at the same time being comforted by God. Where's what I want you to understand this morning? And if you were to take anything, this, this is what I want you to hear. A robust, consistent way of lamenting should cause many of us to find comfort in Christ and desire an eternal deliverance for our enemies in all nations. A robust, consistent, intentional lamenting 
Practice of lamenting should cause us to have comfort, eternal comfort, and also give us a desire to see eternal deliverance for our enemies and all nations. Let, let, let's get right into, right into it. And y'all know I'm pretty long-winded, so I know that I'm not going to get through everything that I've, that I've went through. I just know I'm not. So I got to feel okay with that. Amen, somebody. So pray my strength that I can skip over some of the things so that I can get through what I need to get through. Amen. God help us. But listen, the first point, and you have it here, is trusting in God while being humiliated. It's actually verses 1 through 10. I sent this early, but it's actually verses 1 through 10. That's the first block. Our staff, just the other day, I want to illustrate this through this. Trusting God, trusting in God while being humiliated. Our staff went to the Memphis Rocks in South Memphis. Anybody been to the Memphis Rocks? Just say amen. Amen. It's a, it's a good experience. I've never climbed a rock in my life. The only rock that I've climbed is stones, st- stubbles, and mountains. That's it. I've never climbed a rock. Don't plan on climbing a rock. Don't plan on going up a mountain. Not until I'm in glory. When I, if I see a wolf, lion, tiger, a bear on my way, I will fall out, faint, and eternally be with Jesus. I'm just telling y'all right now. So Memphis Rocks is safe for me. So we did a little team building exercise, and we learned what it means to belay, meaning that you're the individual holding this rope, and as you're holding the rope, you say belay on as you want to climb the rock. You say climb, climb on. We learned everything. So I was able to pull, push, and pull, do the whole interactions. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm moving my arms right now in a belay kind of way. But as I was beginning to climb the rock, with my partner, who my brother is not here, Terrence, who was looking out for me, I began to climb the rock, trusting fully in him because I'd already belayed him all the way through. I'd held him down. He'd climb the rock, made sure that he was safe. I'm using all of my strength. I'm pulling up. I'm pushing down. I'm pulling up. He's safe and sound, right? He didn't get to all the way where he wanted to, but I made sure that he got to the ground. Amen, somebody. As long as my feet on solid ground, I don't even want to preach that. But here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I get up there. And I'm eager, right? Because I know that there's a mat down there. I know I feel comfortable. We have a trainer who's telling us everything to do. And we're trusting each other. We're building with one another as a team. So I get up there. I'm climbing, right? And I'm just, I feel like Superman, okay? Next thing you know, there was one. And I felt the Holy Ghost say, slow down, Mike. And I was like, no, I got this. This is all good. And next thing you know, there was a blue little piece of rock thing that I could put my hand on. I reached for it and my fingers touched it, wham, I went down, and I'm telling you, I was a gymnast for the first time in my life. I did cartwheels, spins, notes, and everything in the air while hanging from a rope. I'm telling you, I thought it was all over. So I didn't even scream. I just knew. I'm going to see Jesus right now on a, on a home team building exercise. What greater work is it than working for a church, being a pastor, and then I die right here? Okay. As long as my family's okay, right? And then the guy told him, he said, listen, you, he said, man, you weren't paying attention to the rope. He was telling my partner that. And so my partner was like, oh, so I'm swinging through the air and then, like the Lord bring me back to myself. I thought I was in heaven and I came back. My spirits came right back to me. And the next thing you know, I said, okay, Lord, this was my first time ever doing this. And you already killed me. Not almost, already. <laughs> And so I got to do it again. This is the, this is the real trusting because there was, there was nothing to humiliate me at first. 
I'm, I'm humbled, okay? Because I was moving fast and everything. So I had to do it again. And so it felt good because I was climbing, but then I got to the part where I fell. I want you to think about this. I got to the part where I failed and I had to ask myself, am I going to trust in the brother holding the rope? I said, no. <laughs> I'm gonna trust in you, alone, in you alone, Lord Jesus. But no, I looked down and, and I said, Terrence, do you, do you got me? And he said, I got you. And so I kept climbing as I climbed because th that was that part where I didn't know if I can go beyond that. But I had to trust the brother with the rope to know that he was going to have me even if I missed it again. What David is teaching us here and it's clear is he feels this level of abandonment, fear, humiliation, and doubt. Many of us have areas in our lives where we have actually tried to climb a particular, what's a season, there's a mount something, and you know what happens is you get to that point where you've been hurt, where you've been humiliated, where there is fear, where you've been afflicted, and you don't know if you want to continue to climb the mount. But you look at God and you say to yourself, God, I don't know if I can go a little bit higher. I don't know if I can trust in you right here. I'm going to just stay here and climb back down. But God is saying, you can actually trust in me. You can trust in me, even though you've been humiliated once and you feel like I've forsaken you. David says, my God, my God, why have, have you forsaken me? The next verse actually explains the fact that he feels like God is far away from him. And so this reality is, is God, I don't know how I can feel like you are with me, but I am going to declare that you're my God. He has a good theology to understand that even though I don't feel like you're near to me, you're still my God because there's no other God around me that can be you. There's no other God that can do what you can do for my life. There's no other God that can sustain me. No other God that can catch me. No other God that will be the eternal rope that will hold on to me even though that I swing through life at times and I flip through life at times and the devil may smack me and my enemies may try to control me. The trauma and the things in my mind may build up and I cannot feel you near me. I didn't know I was going to preach it like this. But God's, God's doing something. And what, he, and what he's saying is, he's saying, I've been tormented. And you can see this throughout the time because David is working back and forth. He's saying, God, you, you know, I don't feel you next to me. But then the next block, he's saying, God, you've comforted me. And he's given me this assurance. You see it in verses 3 through 5. Because after crying out to God day and night, how many of y'all cried out to God day and night and you felt no answer? You cried out in the nighttime and you felt no rest. You feel as if you don't have anywhere to go. You can't even sleep at night because you don't know if God is with you. Can I tell you something before we even get to the New Testament? That God made a promise in Hebrews that he will never forsake you nor will he ever leave you and so when David gets to the next part you can look at these personal pronouns where he says in verse 4 for yet you and and in, in verse 5 in you and and then all in, in verse in verse uh, 4 he says in you and you see in verse 3 he says yet you in verse 5 he says to you and in you David is making it clear that there's only one individual that can help him that can deliver him. 
And when you look at it, he says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. He is strategic in the way that he's placed every personal pronoun so that he doesn't confuse it with any other God, nor does he confuse it with his own strength. He wants to make it clear that I remember the stories, the oral tradition that I heard when my grandmother and my grandfather were delivered through the Red Sea. I remember the stories that I heard when you delivered Abraham's crazy tale when he lied to Pharaoh, Amen, Sarah, and you got them through the situation. I remember when you actually delivered my foolish ancestors who created this other idol in a golden calf and said that it was Yahweh, but you actually destroyed it, put it on fire while Moses was on a mountain, and you actually showed your glory and showed up to your people. I remember when you rescued them. Can you remember when God rescued you? Can you remember when God actually was with you, MTR people, when you were crying and you didn't know when you were going to make it through the entire resident TFA people, you didn't know if you were actually going to make it through the next school year. I mean, can you remember some of y'all college students when you didn't know if the student loans were going to come through, if you didn't know if somebody was going to pay that next account? Do you remember when you cannot go home because your family does not have enough money and food to put on a table and so you got to work the college summer you can't take summer classes do you remember when some of us who come from I'm gonna say it this way from the gutter to the butter do you remember when you were actually poor do you remember when your parents had to work and now you are in a situation that where you having trusted in the same God that your parents trust in some of y'all may not have that privilege but God has brought you to a part to where your life right now, you, can, you have a job. You are able to provide. You've seen grandkids who are here now. Trusting in God is a tool in which David shows us that you, even though in the pain that he is feeling, beloved, that he's demonstrated a faithfulness. He's demonstrated a longing in the midst of his pain and humiliation. Because he know his father is good. And I know if we look at this, we may say, well, how is he a rescuer and a redeemer if he's crying out? Because God keeps his promises. He's a covenant God who keeps his promises. How can he still be good? My, my, my father was not there and I, I, I didn't have him in my life. I had to struggle through some things in my life, and I didn't know the man. I, didn't, I, didn't even, I, I can't even tell you his name. I can't even tell you what he looked like. My, guy, I, I, my, my husband left me. I got three kids. My husband left me. My wife, she left me. We were supposed to be a, a believing household. We were supposed to be Christians in, in this southern Bible Belt city. And, 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 and next thing you know, they up and left and turned their back on me. They weren't the same person that, that I seen or was with when we first got married. My, my spouse is addicted. I don't know. All of these things are predicated upon circumstance. But what I want to tell you is that what, what David actually says is that you feel the deepest loneliness when God is not with you. 
So what is it then? What am I trying to make the point? Is that your circumstance should never dictate where God is. Your circumstance, should, your situation should never dictate where God is and how you should trust him. That's why, that's the point. Trusting in God while being humiliated. That, that's, that's hard. And so when, when you see that God, when you see that God is with you, even though when David is saying, when you look at the next couple verses, when he is saying, you know what? They've mocked me. They scorned me. They, they've despised me. They've made me feel worthless. He calls himself in verse six, I am, but, but I am a worm and not a man. Many of us, if you, many of us struggle with identity, identity. Some of, us, some of us find it ethnically. Some of us find our identity in the things that we can accumulate or accomplish. Some of us find our identity in what the things that we try to conquer. But can I tell you something this morning? Is that the fact of the matter is, is that you are not who you are because of where you are. You are who you are. If I'm looking at what David is saying and what, he is, what, he is, what he's going to get to in verse 9 through 10, you are who you are because God took you from the womb of your mother. And do you know how he took care of you? He allowed your mother to nurture you. Some of y'all may, may be missing what David is going through, sitting, getting through right here. He said that in verse, when you look at verse 9, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. He was an infant. I ain't going to get on my Baptist people. He was an infant. And God was working on him in an internal way, in a, with an eternal way, that he actually allowed him to trust in him while his mother was nurturing him. All I have a picture of in my modern-day mind, and this may not be true, but I'm going to infer this on the text. All I imagine is his mother singing hymns to him, singing psalms, maybe singing or re 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 repeating in a Hebrew way. See, if you, if you listen to the Hebrew and when they would do oral tradition, it was rhythmic, it was poetic. These poses that they have, these prose that they have, sorry, that she was just singing in this rhythmic way and, that we, and as she was able to go and remind them, even as an infant, just putting stuff in them, depositing stuff, nurturing him. Even though that there was a physical nurturing through the milk of the breast, there was actually an eternal nurturing that prepared him to accept Jesus and trust in God as his God, his covenant God. Amen. That's, a, that's a picture because when he says that I'm a worm, I'm a maggot, literally, I'm a maggot. He's describing himself as insignificant, as small, as powerless. But what God wants to remind him is that you are not fat. And this is what he says, because I have called you. Will you trust in me? I got to keep moving. Will you trust in me? Uh, because in the midst of trusting, also, you have to deal with grieving. Grieving while surrounded by enemies. Can you believe that in verses 11 through 21? You're grieving while being surrounded by all of the enemies around you. Being, feeling defeated. I remember one time when I was in middle school and a dude wanted to fight me, right? And I'm in the bathroom and he said, well, Mike, meet me at Heman Park. I'm from St. Louis, so this is this park that was like right down the street. He's like, meet me at Heman Park. And I'm like, meet you at Heman Park by myself? Because the last time somebody met somebody at that park, they jumped out of the bushes and jumped them. I said, I'm not going to no Heman Park. 
We have to fight now or at a later date. Otherwise not, I'm not going nowhere else, okay? But, but, but the reality is, reality is what David is saying is, when you look at verse 10, he says, I, on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. Sorry, in verse 11. But be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Still saying, God, where are you? You're far from me. And look at how he described what's around him. Bulls, dogs, lions, wild oxen. It's a picture of this beastly crowd surrounding him, which he may, you, we may read this and see animals, but he felt that it was really human. What he felt was actually real. Do you, sometimes we can make Jesus like a superhero. In his full humanity, do you realize Jesus felt pain? It wasn't as if the, that the, when, when the nails went in his hands that he was like, okay, God, I got it. It wasn't as if when he, was, when he was spit in his face or when he was rejected by his own people that he was like, okay, God, I'm a, Father, I'm going to just keep moving. He was hurt. How do we know this? Because when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he ask to be passed for him? This cup. What was he bleeding? Blood. I mean, sweating. Blood. This was a very distressed situation and gives, here's why Psalm 22 kind of points to this Christological figure because we see the same amount of stress. We see the same, in some way, the same amount of pain and agony and hurt. Can I tell you something? And I think that this is why I want to let you know this is that in the midst of grief, it does not mean that you are away from your enemies. Grief is real. Every single time that we go to funerals and we dismiss the fact that, that the people that are leaving, living have to deal with the pain and the suffering, it's real. Grief is real. If you've ever been hurt, afflicted, grief is real. And so you, if you're not grieving that, but you're suppressing that and allowing yourself to say, well, I can just move on to the next thing and I'm, I'm, I'm going to allow myself to dismiss it, you're actually causing more and afflicting more pain on yourself. But you have to say, God, I feel so horrible because I lost my spouse. I lost my grandmother. My cousin was gunned down. We continue to see unjust murders. We continue to see grieving doesn't just stop with death physically. Grieving also, it also carries through seeing poor people, seeing people being divided, seeing people go through sickness, seeing people go through pain. Grief is real. If you haven't dealt with that grief, brothers and sisters, as a pastor, I just want to just tell you that maybe you should sit with someone. Talk to someone. Lament to God as well. Allow this to be an exercise because the trauma that you feel from your personal history still affects you even when you're 50, 60, 25, 30. I had a brother who uh, we went to this Revoice conference and I went to seminary with one brother who the Revoice conference basically dealt with Christians who are side B, which means that they are professing Christians, but are same-sex attracted. And they are living lives of celibacy. And one of my friends who was leading in that 
because I went to seminary with him, he always told us about a church that actually hurt him so bad because of how he was trying to live that he w- they wouldn't allow him to be an ordained minister. And in his heart, he had so much pain and grief and sorrow because he felt as if he was trying to live as a Christian and wanting to live this way and dealing with the things that he was dealing with, but nobody empathized with him. It's not that our, it's not that enemies have to, in my personal opinion, enemies have to actually just physically beat you all the time. We can be enemies to one another as Christians. If we don't see a sincere way to empathize with each other and see each other's pain and realize that if we come into this place, and we're going to deal with this in the next point, we come into this place every time trying to carry what we hope and what we desire for downtown church and not what God desires for downtown church, we're going to lose every time. Not only are we going to lose, but we're going to miss the people that are hurting around us. We're going to miss the distinctions that are around us. We're going to actually put people below us and put ourselves above them. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? One last one is petition and praise. Petition and praise in verses 22 through 31. When you look at 20, verse 25, we see that David, who goes from this, I'm distant from God, to now actually feeling as if I need to put a praise on things. Not only... Not only does he praise God, but I want y'all to see this. He petitions for somebody. And I'm going to read this. Look at verse 22. I will tell you from of your name to my brothers in the midst of this congregation. Whose name? God's name. And I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. He's telling all of them, all of the offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of all offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from them, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my, say it, praise. Say praise. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows. I will perform before those who fear him. Listen to this in verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. My heart, uh, may your hearts live forever. I'm going to stop right there before we read on. In verse 25, this law was to encourage those by this vow that he made, that they will experience the same God through praise and feasting together because of a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I don't want to lose you, and I don't want to go too far over there, but you, I, want to, I, want to, I want to make this very real, okay? It's almost as if we hear Michael Rose talk all the time about this feast idea, so just take every time you've heard Michael talk about feasting. Think about this idea of a big family reunion. And next thing you know, you got that one cousin who comes to the family reunion and they just came to know the Lord. Some people will say they just got saved. However you want to say it. They just came to know Jesus. And they come to the family reunion, but they're hosting the family reunion. And everything they say is, y'all, I'm changed. 
I'm transformed. And I, you know what? We're going to make a sacrifice. And our sacrifice is going to be a sacrifice of praise. And next thing you know, the whole band pop up out of the ground, out of nowhere. I'm making this up in my mind. Band pop up out of the ground, nowhere. And it's this huge party. And next thing you know, somebody's singing. And they're all praising together. But you get this. He just didn't invite his family. The same people that were stuck with him in the back alleys. The same people was doing the drug and the drinking. The same people that was afflicting other people. He invited them to the reunion. And now all of them, as they, he invited to the union, they were satisfied, filled, and actually seeing the glory of the Lord through the transformation of the individual from his afflictions. What David gives us a picture here of is that when he is delivered through his trial, he has actually set a feast together for the great congregation, not just for the afflicted, but the, for the wealthy as well. All of those that prosper will eat and worship. Mike, this entire time you've been trying to tell us about worship? Absolutely. This is what David has been getting to because what is he saying? It's a boundless kingdom vision. A boundless kingdom vision. That is not, it's not a table of segregation. It's not a table of rich and poor, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, and all others. It's not a table for one ethnic group. It's a table that actually reaches across bounds, reaches across class, reaches across generations, and tells all people to declare the Lord together. Amen, somebody. So what is great about this vision? Because I, 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 I got to stop. What I feel is greatest about this vision is when I watched this documentary, this series, and many of y'all have heard of the Central Park Five. Many of y'all were alive at that time. And when I watched the, the series, I may ruin it for some of y'all. It's on Netflix. But it was about these young boys, babies, babies, who actually did real jail time for a crime they did not commit. Their parents and their siblings when they were without food or water for 48 hours, would come in and be forced to sign a document that would say they would surrender, they would surrender their rights, their Miranda rights, and send them off to prison because all they kept saying is, I want to go home. At 14 years old, 16 years old, one young man looked at his sister and said, I just want to go home. And the detectives would say, yeah, if you just sign this, you can go home. And his sister was like, I don't want to sign it until mama gets here. I just want to go home. One young man who actually was pulled in to the detective's office just because he was standing with his friend and he wanted to make sure that his friend would get home safely after being integrated. They pulled him in. He hadn't, none of them had anything to do with it, but he was just there because he was there to support his friend. They pulled him in. Out of all of them, he did the most prison time. He was in Rikers, Attica. He was 365 miles away from his mother who could not see him. You can imagine he was beaten, brutalized, raped, etc. It was just too hard to watch. His mother came in and said she received Jesus. I don't know if they wrote it like this. I, I, Next thing you know, it was a man that he had an encounter with at one prison facility, and then they went to the same prison facility. And the young man walks up to him and said, you don't remember me. His name was Corey Wise, who 
who did the crime for, for who was innocent but did the crime uh, did the time and the other young man I cannot remember his name Ray Rayless Reyes and he walks up to him and he essentially says that I, I can only see this as deliverance essentially he has the key to free him he goes into the war he goes to the ward and you know what he tells him I did the crime and he described what actually happened on that night what's all it decades and you know what you know what they didn't believe him initially a man confessing to the crime they didn't believe him and then they went through all the facts and you know what Corey Wise was freed in the Central Park Five they're still alive and they're free today but all I can remember is that it was a man who was not guilty who said, I won't leave you nor forsake you, but I will hang myself on a cross for you, even though that you're guilty. And I will remind you that this is unjust what's happening to me. But I'm doing it because I love you. God loves you, and it's okay to cry out to him. And it's okay to lament and grieve and wail. And it's worshipful. And it actually means that we're closer to God. But most of all, we hope for deliverance for all of our nations and all of our people. Pray with me. Father, we love you. And we bless you, Jesus. You told us to come to you. You told us, Lord Jesus, that if we come to you, we will find rest. And I pray that we do that this time, this morning, this week, all the days of our lives. That, Lord Jesus, as we come to you and we offer sacrifice of worship and praise, I pray, Jesus, that many of us who are locked up by sin, held in bondage, that we recognize that what you did for us was to die so that we, won't, we may not feel forsaken. You died so that we may be free. But God, you also said that we're humans and there's real pain, and there's real sorrow, there's real grief. Help us to trust, help us to grieve, help us to petition, help us to praise. Let us pray for those who afflict us, let us be a church that wants to see all the nations here. Let us be a church that desires to be cross-ethnic, meaning that we're moving towards one another. Help some of us to change some of our friend groups. Help some of us to change the way we look at brothers and sisters from different ethnic groups. Help us, Jesus. Break those chains. Help us, Lord God, not to look at poor people as disadvantaged individuals. I mean, the poor people as just um, people that, that we can just... They're disenfranchised and pushed aside, but help us to see them as our brothers and sisters. Help us not to look at ourselves as wealthy and rich and, and above other, every, other, every other individual, but help us to, to empathize. I pray, Lord God, for older folks to empathize with younger people and younger, younger people to empathize with, with our more seasoned brothers and sisters. I pray for generational harmony. I pray for peace amongst this congregation. 
I pray for every person that feels lonely here this morning, that you allow them to feel liberated and freed by the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us come to you, Jesus, knowing that you're the only one that can answer every prayer that we say, and you hear our hearts. It's in Jesus' mighty name we say. All God's people say together. Let us continue to worship God by singing and giving to him.